We are uh, going to look at just a few verses out of uh, Luke 15 today. So I invite you to locate that uh, in your New Testament. I do want to say that, uh, you know, your kids were cute and all, but I couldn't take my eyes off of that guitar player over there. I don't know if you noticed. So we're going to uh, just look at a couple of uh, quick uh, verses here, the beginning of Luke 15. And uh, if you are in an Oasis group, if you are in an encounter group, if you are in some kind of a uh, discussion about uh, uh, the work that we're doing around relationships, uh, I'll invite you to uh, look at the rest of uh, Luke 15 uh, as you prepare for that discussion. And we'll refer to um, some aspects of the rest of this chapter as we make our way through this morning. Uh, Just uh, a handful of verses, a couple of verses here. Luke 15, verse 1. Uh, Tax collectors... Uh, So tax collectors uh, in Luke's day, right, in this uh, setting, are not nice people, right? Um, Tax collectors are mostly dishonest, and uh, they are traitors to their own people, right? So uh, the oppressive Roman government would have come and hired uh, local uh, Jewish uh, family members or Jewish friends uh, to become tax collectors, Uh, They would collect taxes for the oppressive Roman government, uh, charge an exorbitant rate, skim some off the top, pass along only what was necessary. Uh, So these are not um, really good people, right? They're dishonest. They're um, disloyal. Uh, And other notorious sinners, right? Say that. Notorious sinners, right? Are are these the kinds of people that you want to hang with, right? Notorious sinners, right? These are... Um, people who, uh, whose offense is known, public, uh, um, often came to listen to Jesus teach. So it's these um, tax collectors and notorious sinners who are in Jesus' congregation. And this made the Pharisees, who are the good guys, um, who are the, the righteous ones, right? This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain uh, that he was associating with such despicable people. Say that, despicable people. Right? I mean, just saying it. Right? Right? Notorious sinners, despicable people. These are not um, good people. And Jesus is not just going to church with them, but it says, even eating with them. Even eating with them. So we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. So as you know, we are continuing our little series on generous relationships. What does it mean to follow Jesus into our relationships? And today we want to turn to this idea of loving relationships, of generously loving others in our relationships. And sometimes in the human, uh, in the English language, Um, in in many languages, for that matter, uh, the idea of love is really ambiguous and nebulous. It can mean so many different things that it almost means nothing. Uh, When we're talking about loving others, when we're talking about following Jesus into loving relationships, what is it that we're talking about? What do we mean? Uh, So what I want to do today is be very, very specific. I want to be as concrete as I can about what love looks like uh, from Jesus' perspective. And uh, in these verses, uh, and as we go forward into the rest of Luke 15, part of what I want to say is that loving very concretely, very uh, specifically, looks like making room. It's making space for people. 
So uh, let's just sit with that for a little bit this morning. Um, whenever I think about the idea of making space, whenever, whenever I've been the recipient of somebody's desire to make space for me, uh, I always think back just a few years ago uh, to, a, to one evening uh, when I went out to uh, our marina. Uh, I was looking for some space to go and do a little bit of uh, sermon preparation, to do some reading and thinking and uh, kind of looking ahead. I needed some space to do some uh, some internal work and reflection and some quiet. So I went out to our marina, and uh, I arrived after dinner. And uh, you go out to the marina, and uh, there's sort of a grassy area uh, between the parking lot and the docks. And on that grassy area is always, uh, most weekend nights, a collection of all kinds of individuals, right? People who come from all kinds of life experiences and backgrounds. And they're gathered together uh, as I arrive, sitting <coughs> sitting around a, a little fire pit. And uh, they're smoking their cigars uh, and other things. They're uh, drinking. Uh, they're telling some dirty jokes. They're cussing a little bit. Uh, they're laughing a little bit too loud, right? And I was kind of thinking, I'm just going to skirt around the outside of this group and make it in, uh, you know, uh, uh, to the boat. And I'm going to sit there and I'm going to do my, my sermon plan. And uh, this is going on, and I'm just, you know, just making it past them. And all of a sudden, hey, pastor, I hear, right? And, and immediately, immediately, what happens? Uh, everybody uh, just kind of pushes their chair back, and they literally make space. They literally make space for me. Uh, and they and they invite me into the circle, right? And so now here I am. Um, thinking about sermons and thinking about holy God and all of the and all of that and and now I'm in the in the circle right and smoking and every drink and the in the and in the circle and they said to me right and they said so what why are you doing out here where's Tammy why didn't you bring Tammy because most people right when they meet me really are hoping that Tammy's lost so where's Tammy why isn't Tammy with you well she's uh, she's uh, at the house I'm here and I said I'm here to do some work right I'm here to write some sermons and uh, to think about sermon planning thinking that maybe they, that would kind of uh, help them to say, okay, well, you know, go on and do your sermon plan. But no, right? Uh, so now the circle uh, that literally has been, has been enlarged to include me, uh, now, now sort of um, figuratively and emotionally widens. And they say, well, can we help? <laughs> well, okay. So what do you have in mind? And so they started to offer suggestions about things that I could preach about things that they would love to hear sermons about, right? And I'm just thinking, this is solid gold, and, right? And so there, there are you know, all these ideas of things that I could preach about someday. And then somebody said, we bet you need some new jokes. Now, I don't know who here they've been talking to to think that I would need some new jokes, but somehow they got the idea that I needed to work on uh, some jokes. And so they offered me some jokes. You know, just started telling me their favorite jokes. And... Uh, some of, some of them were appropriate. Maybe one of them was appropriate. No, they weren't any appropriate, so I can't tell you the jokes. I can't tell you the jokes. But, but they, you know, they wanted me to, um, to tell the jokes, and they, and they wanted to know. Now, make sure you, when you tell this joke, tell us how it goes, right? Tell us what happens. And then, and then they said, well, you know what? Maybe what you really need is not just so much joke, but have a beer. Uh, have some Captain Morgans. Have a drink, and that will help your creative process, right? And so now they're... You know, kind of want the you know the salubrious effects of uh, uh, some adult beverages, and they're wanting me to, uh, uh, to to take that tack. And then they finally just said, you know what? Um, why don't you just put your feet up and wing it? Um, 
wing it, to, wing it tomorrow, it'll be fine. And again, I don't know who they were talking to here to think that that was a possibility. Uh, but uh, again, there's this sense of the circle is enlarging, right? Uh, they're, they're making space for me. And they're inviting me to make space for them. They're inviting me to say, um, your ideas matter. Your, your friendship matters. Your interest is important. And in the end, what I did do was to say, I promise that I will use everything that I've learned tonight in a sermon. And now I fulfilled that promise. So, so, here's, so hospitality, making space, this idea of enlarge the circle, push out your chair, welcome somebody to the table, and being invited uh, to make space for them. So as we continue this series on following Jesus into our relationships, this discipleship series, uh, I want to think with you a little bit today about some of the costs of doing that. Uh, It it isn't enough just to say um, you should make space for people, you should enlarge the circle, you should invite them to your... uh, There's a cost, right? And Jesus says really clearly in the gospel, don't follow me unless you count the costs. There is a cost to doing uh, space-making, to doing hospitality. There's a cost. Uh, but then there's also, there's also this incredible uh, power, right? There's an incredible power to loving somebody enough to make room for them. Uh, and then we want to think about uh, what it takes to do that, right? What are some things that have to happen in our lives in order to make space, to, 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 to count the cost, yes, but to make space so that this incredibly powerful thing can begin to happen. So what the uh, little episode at the marina sort of punched up for me uh, were some of the practical costs, right? Um, There are costs and risks if we're going to practice hospitality, if we're going to practice space-making, and if we're going to receive it. Uh, In a very mild way, uh, this little experience out at the dock carried the risk for me of giving up some of my identity giving up some of my, my, my uh, responsibilities, right? They weren't kidding. They really wanted, they weren't kidding. They really wanted to help write some sermons, right? They really wanted to be included in the sermon writing process. Uh, they were serious about that. They wanted me to take their input. They wanted me to receive their gifts seriously. And uh, so, to you know, very mildly, I was in a challenging position, right? I was in a challenging position of either... Um, taking their offered gifts of hospitality, or I could uh, have pretended to take their offered gifts of hospitality and thereby introduce some level of deception into the community, or I could have rejected their offered gifts of hospitality and run the risk of offending somebody. Uh, Offending somebody is a real risk when we're making space. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening here in these first two verses of Luke 15. Jesus' behavior is offensive. Uh, Jesus' behavior is off-putting uh, to a certain sector of the Jewish uh, community. Uh, he's running the risk of making by making space for the wrong people, right? Who is he making space for? It's the notorious sinners. It's, it's the tax collectors. Uh, it's the despicable people. He's making space for them. And he's losing favor with the right people. Uh, He's becoming legally defiled, according to the ceremonial Jewish law and custom. Making space for one runs the risk of offending the other. 
what are the costs that would keep you and me from making space for someone? What is it that prevents us from making room? Is it fear? Is it uh, discomfort? Is it financial cost? Is it that terrible feeling of being taken advantage of? Is it uh, that overwhelming feeling of being inadequate or not knowing what to do or say? What is it that prevents us from making space? I can recall as a little uh, child sitting at my grandmother's kitchen table. I can still see the white Formica circle table and sitting in those vinyl uh, swivel chairs and listening to them tell stories. And my, my grandma would tell stories about hospitality at that little white Formica table. And she would tell stories about uh, in their earlier uh, uh, newlywed days when um, what they in that time called hobos uh, would walk through their neighborhood uh, on their way to the train tracks that were just beyond uh, their street. And uh, she said people would come through uh, walking down the street on the way to the train yard and they would knock on the door or see, uh, see her sitting out front. And she said, and I would always welcome them in, right? And my, and my mother would always say, Mother, right? Uh, what, what were you thinking? And, and um, recognizing that there's cost, there's risk, there's danger. And she, and she would invite them in, and she would make them a bologna sandwich or a cheese sandwich and pack up a couple of sandwiches for them to take with them on the trains. And she was also very careful to say that this was not some golden uh, age of, of human behavior. Uh, sometimes the people that came into their kitchen were demanding. Sometimes they were rude. Sometimes they wouldn't leave. She said at least once she felt threatened. It's a cost. A number of uh, years ago, uh, Tammy and I welcomed a, a single mom and some kids into our home to stay for a little while. Somebody who didn't have a place to stay uh, moved into our home, and uh, right from the beginning, there was the cost of incredible discomfort and displacement. It's costly. Uh, and then that cost escalated uh, when we were physically threatened by a drug-enraged boyfriend. I had a chilling message on my cell phone one day that says, I'm coming to kill you. It's a cost involved to make space. My friend Trisha Taylor, if any of you have done faith walking, you know Trisha's story about her favorite Uncle Guy. And Uncle Guy was one who always made space. He was one who loved by giving people rides. And the front seat of his car uh, was space for strangers who were hitchhiking. He always hitch, uh, picked up hitchhikers. And one day she tells the story that Uncle Guy disappeared. And nobody knew where he went until they found his empty car. And his trunk was open and his tools were missing. There's a cost to doing hospitality. There's a cost to loving. There's a cost to making space. It might be that I'm challenged to give up leisurely evenings or quiet dinners or preferred guests. I might have to change some lifestyle habits in order to free up resources for hospitality. Making room for another person in my life, at my table, in my home, in my car, um, is generous precisely because it's risky. 
And here's the gospel in these two verses. Here's the gospel. Do, do you understand? You get, right? That when Luke is telling this story, that you're the despicable ones? That, 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 that we're the notorious sinners? You get that, right? That the notorious sinners and the despicable ones and the tax collectors and the fraudulent ones, uh, those aren't somebody else. That's us. That, that from the perspective of the Jews of, of Jesus' day, that you and I would have been the despicable outsiders. We were the ones who were dislocated. We were the ones who were far from God. We are the ones who don't have a place at the table. We're those people. You get that, right? And the gospel is that Jesus came and took the risk. See, you're first, first of all, you are not the ones who take the risk. You are the risk. You aren't the ones who pay the price. You are the price. Jesus comes and he pays the price for you. He says, in order to have you at my table, in order to have you in my family, in order to make space for you in my life, in my kingdom, in order to do that, I'm willing to pay the cost. I'm willing to die. And I don't know exactly what that does, but in some way and in some form, when Jesus dies, we get in to God's family in a way that before there wasn't space. This is the gospel. That we're in, we're included, we're welcomed. The circle is bigger. Following Jesus, following that Jesus, who says, I'll pay that cost into our relationships. It's costly and it's risky. And, and, for those of you who have met that Jesus, for those of you who have experienced that welcome, you know that that's the way that lives are changed. You know that the incredible power of being included, of being welcomed, of being a part, you know that that's the way that a life is changed. Here's a quote from Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite quotes about inclusion. Hospitality is not to change people but to offer them space where change can take place. It's not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom, not disturbed by dividing lines. It's not to lead our neighbor into a corner where there are no alternatives left, but to open a wide spectrum of options for choice and commitment. Hospitality is not a subtle invitation to adopt the lifestyle of the host, but the gift of chance to find one's own. Making space, making room, showing love. So what's involved with that? What does it take to get traction in that direction? Three very quick stories follow. We, we, we know these stories. We've heard the story of the lost sheep. We sang about the 99 sheep earlier today. right? We know the story about the lost sheep. We know the story about the lost coin. We know the story about the lost son. But we want to hear it today in the context of, of what Jesus is responding to. And Jesus is responding to the ones who are offended at his radical inclusion. He's, he's responding to those who are mad because he's making space. 
Right? These are stories that Jesus tells to answer the question of the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are saying, why are you bringing these people to your table? Why do you have room for these people in your life? And he tells these stories. The first story he tells is a story about a shepherd. And Jesus says there's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and they're out doing their sheeping thing, and they come back home for the night, and the shepherd realizes that there's a sheep missing. One sheep out of a hundred is missing. And what does the shepherd do? He leaves behind the 99, and he goes and he finds the one. And the story is a story about a shift in priority. It's about a shift in focus. See, from heaven's perspective, actively making space for that one missing sheep, space in the shepherd's time, in the shepherd's energy, in the shepherd's plans for the evening, in the shepherd's travel schedule, making space for the one is the right priority. Making space for relationships means that the relationship is the priority. The person, not the project. I've been uh, enjoying David Brooks' um, book. Uh, if you don't know David Brooks, uh, he's a well-known uh, uh, columnist, uh, author, um, and he writes uh, one book called The S uh, Second Mountain. And in The Second Mountain, he talks about uh, two mountains in life. And he says most of us, over the course of our life, will climb two mountains. The first mountain in life uh, comes early, right? This is the this is the mountain that we learn to climb as as a as a teenager, as an adolescent, as we step into uh, the, our 20s, our early career. And the mountain that we're climbing is uh, the mountain of success, right? However we want to measure success, we're we're climbing a mountain of success. Uh, we're we're trying to make it. And he says, and what happens is many people never get to the top of the mountain of success. Uh, Brooks uh, has gotten pretty close uh, in his field. Uh, but the top of the mountain of success, for many of us, we never get there. And for some of us, we get there, and we find out that it's pretty empty. Uh, it's pretty meaningless. Uh, so this mountain of success, and he says, and then there's this valley that happens. And in the valley, what happens is uh, there's either some disappointment, there's some tragedy, there's some loss, there's something that happens to us or in us or around us that we can't control. And we realize that this mountain of success does nothing to protect us from that. We go through a valley. He says, then there's a second mountain. And the second mountain that we climb isn't the mountain of success, but it's the mountain of significance. And we're, and we're, and we're investing in our life in a different way. He says, in order to begin climbing the mountain of significance, there's, a, there's a, a shift, there's a change in priority that has to happen. There's a change in priority that has to happen. He tells a story that illustrates that shift in priority. It's a story about uh, Kathy and David. Kathy and David uh, live in the Washington, D.C. metro area, and they have a son named Santi, and Santi goes to a public school in uh, D.C., and at school, Santi has a friend named James. And Santi came home and said, sometimes James goes to bed hungry at night. Sometimes James doesn't have a place to stay. And it turns out that James has a friend, and that friend had another friend, and that friend had another friend, and so on and so forth. And now, if you go to Kathy and Dave's house on any given Thursday night, Brooke says, you'll find about... Uh, 25 kids eating dinner there that night. Any, any Thursday night of the week, every, every week. There are generally four or five that are living with them. And every 
summer, Kathy and Dave uh, round up a caravan and take about 40 kids out of the city uh, to a vacation uh, on Cape Cod. Um, simply by responding to the needs that they saw around them, simply by prioritizing the needs that they saw, uh, Kathy and Dave um, have become the center of this new family. They've made room at their table and in their house. So uh, Brooks describes that uh, he has started going to dinner at Kathy and Dave's, and that Brooks is a part of this weekly mealtime together. And he says, this is what happens. We normally, uh, we nominally get together um, around the table on Thursdays to eat, but in reality, we gather to feed a deeper hunger. The meal is always the same. It's spicy chicken and black rice. Cell phones are banned. Uh, about a third of the way through the meal, we go around the table, and each person says something that they're grateful for, uh, something nobody knows about them, or something other um, uh, about their life at the moment. There are frequent celebrations. Somebody passed the GED exam, got a job, or graduated from barber school. Uh, people also throw more complicated things on the table, too. A 17-year-old girl is dealing with a pregnancy. Another young woman has a failing kidney. and Medicaid refuses to pay the cost for the new one. A young man announces he's bisexual, and another admits he's depressed. Uh, one day, a new arrival at the table told us that though she was now 21, she hadn't sat at a dinner table since she was 11. He writes, most of our conversations are pure affirmation. People have had enough crap in their lives and need to hear how valuable they are, how much they are loved and needed. Often we just tell jokes and laugh. The kids sing in their chairs. I brought uh, my daughter one day, and as we walked out, she said to me, that's the warmest place I've ever been in my life. He says that uh, one day they had another guest by the name of Bill Milliken who founded the organization Communities and Schools. He came to the table one night. He's in his 70s now. And he said, I've been working in this field for 50 years, and I've never seen a program turn around a life. Only relationships can do that. There's a risk to making space. There's a risk to enlarging the circle. There's a risk to welcoming somebody to your table. But the unique power of that kind of risky, generous love is that lives are changed, starting with my own. Brooks would say, Kathy and David have the right priority. Jesus would say, the shepherd has the right priority. His eyes are focused. His heart is focused on the right thing. The second mountain. Jesus builds on this idea of right priorities with a story about a lost coin. Have you ever lost your keys? When was the last time you lost your keys? How many of you have ever lost your iPhone, some other important document? Have you ever just lost it? You don't know where it is? How many of you for that is a really calm and tranquil experience, right? Is that mostly, is that mostly the time that you decide to sit back and relax and read some poetry and contemplate deep things? What do you do 
when you've lost something that's important to you, something like your key, something that's going to disrupt your life a little bit. You become frantic. Okay, I become frantic, right? I'm tearing things apart, right? I'm pulling everything open. Everything else pales in comparison to the task of finding this valued lost item. The woman in the story in Luke 15 that Jesus tells about has lost her food for the week, not coin. Maybe she's lost her rent for the month, not coin. And she's saying, I'll do anything to find it because that coin is so valuable to me. She cherishes that. She's frantic to get it. She sees the value. Remember, Jesus is telling this story to respond to religious leaders who don't understand why he's sitting with notorious sinners, right? And do you hear what he's saying? He, he's redefining the players. He's saying these are, these are not notorious sinners. These are, these are people of incredible value that I'm frantic to find. I'll do anything to be with them because they're so valuable. Jesus is saying the coin has value and these people have value, maybe even unique value. Making space, enlarging the circle means that I see the value of the other. Uh, Not just the neediness of the other, but their value. In other words, uh, I come and I say, what is it that I'm about to learn from you? What do you have to teach me today? Uh, what What is the need that I have that I haven't even seen yet, but you're preparing to meet that need in my life? What is it that I lack that you have in abundance? See, a generous relationship sees the value in the other person, welcomes that value into my life, and never sees the person as a project. And then finally, there's a story of a lost son. Jesus tells a story about a shepherd who has the right priorities, a woman who can see the value of what's missing, And he tells a story about a father who loses a son. He tells a story about a father who loses a son uh, in a horrendous way. Uh, The son doesn't die, but he says to his father, I wish you would die. And he leaves home. He leaves home. He abandons his family. He goes and he does life on his own terms. He runs out of money. He realizes he's made a mistake, and he comes home to the father. You all know the story. We call it the prodigal son. But the story that Jesus tells is really about a loving father who's making space. How does the father make space? What is the father doing? Jesus, remember, is telling the story as he's thinking about those notorious sinners, those tax collectors, the the, the ragamuffins and the misfits and the rejects, the outcasts sitting around his table. And he's telling a story about a father's love for his son. And he says, this father is is standing there, and, he, and he's making space for his son, but the space that he makes is, first of all, interior space. Uh, it's the space that we create when we can forgive somebody's offense. Uh, G- Jesus points to a father who is lavish in his forgiveness. That means that I don't just make room at my table or in my house or in my schedule, but I have to make room in my heart. The father who welcomes home the son who had wronged him makes internal space for his son's return by forgiving him. 
the wrong, letting go of the wrong. How many of you know that you can't have revenge and love in your heart at the same time? The Father creates space by letting go. It's the word for forgiveness. It's releasing. It's unraveling that clenched, angry fist. So where does generous space-making show up for you this week? What relationships will you bring the practice of making room towards? What does it look like? Maybe making space for somebody means forgiving them, making interior space in your heart where there's anger or hurt or revenge. Maybe making space for somebody means that you're going to value them and cherish them. You're going to welcome what they bring you. Maybe it means simply scooting back the chairs around the fire and adjusting priorities and focusing on the person. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe... Your spouse hasn't uh, had space in your life for a long time. Maybe a child. Maybe an in-law. Maybe an oasis group that you've been too busy for. Maybe there's someone in your life, a neighbor, a co-worker, a friend who has a need. He'll be costly and disruptive to meet that need. Where is God inviting you? Where is he inviting us to make space and to enlarge the family? Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for the gift of including us. Thank you for that that radical gift of grace that cost you so much. Sometimes we're embarrassed by it. We don't know what to do with it. Lord, help us to receive that invitation deeply and profoundly, to know that we're included in you. And Lord, help us to scan our lives and our relationships, to recognize when we've become stingy and closed where we prefer our own tribe and our own people, our own self. Lord, making space, we want to follow you in that. Holy Spirit, uh, speak, equip, empower to that end. Amen. Saints of God, receive and give this. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God the Father, may the power and the fellowship and the joy of his Holy Spirit be with you and through you now and always. Amen.